Hey, what's up there, Surf Splendor podcast listeners? Thanks for tuning back in. I'm your host, David Scales. Uh, thrilled to be back with you. If you're a new listener to the show, welcome. And you can find all past episodes of Surf Splendor on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com, or in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Everything is available for free. I think there is about 45 episodes now. So uh, definitely go through the archives and uh, enjoy past episodes. Uh, for returning guests, we are actually doing an episode of Surf News this week with Tony Roberts. You probably remember Tony Roberts from a previous episode, uh, well-known, renowned surf photographer and skate photographer, actually, and uh, surf filmmaker as well, skate filmmaker, I should say, also. Um, so I was down in Costa Rica for the last two weeks, which is why there's been a lapse in episode updates. But um, I apologize for that first and foremost because I really didn't intend for that to happen. But we were running literally like 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. days and I was getting about 15 minutes of internet time uh, each day. So I really did not have a, a chance to update uh, the podcasts. So I apologize for that. And it's a learning curve for me. And in the future, we will... Uh, kind of continue to try to streamline the show and eventually, you know, have this stuff in the can, schedule the post prior to leaving the country, basically, or going on surf trips or vacations. So nevertheless, I was down for two weeks in Costa Rica with Tony, surfing and working together, and uh, we decided to record an episode of Surf News. There was some big happenings in the world of surf, which I'm sure you're aware of. And so I wanted to hear Tony's commentary on those things just from the standpoint of being a photographer. I thought that he would have unique insight. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, again, follow us on social media at Surf Splendor to see all the additional show media that uh, is related to all the topics that we discuss. Video, photos, all that kind of stuff. So that's it for now. In terms of business, enjoy the show, and I will be back in the end to sign us off. Thanks. absolutely fit with that slow motion footage. I don't like, really like that song personally. Well, but it's a it cheesy is, song. It's cheesy, but it but, is a beautiful song. Yeah. And it, it has a lot of feeling, and so do those waves and that footage, and it works a lot better than some... If they put dubstep with like fast fast motion footage or, or full motion footage, you know. Yeah. Uh, cool, we're rolling, dude. Okay. So that's okay. the intro to the show. Welcome to the show, Tony Roberts. Hello. <laughs> How's it going? Great. Good. Uh, this is David Scales, host of Surf Splendor. Today we have a special co-host in a special region of the world, Mr. Tony Roberts. We're down here in Costa Rica together. Tony, welcome. Hello, pura vida. Bienvenidos a todos. Welcome, everybody. Uh, Tony 
you may remember for the listeners, the avid listeners, was the subject of an earlier episode of Surf Splendor. We devoted a full hour to Tony, but honestly, we really didn't even begin to unpack uh, the depth of Tony Roberts. Legendary surf filmmaker, photographer, uh, impresario, 50-year-old Grom. What else, Tony? What else? You give your own introduction. You can do it better than I can. Shoots, surfer first and foremost, skater, um, love touching the clay, pottery wheel, DJ, um, events, coordinator. Yeah, so Tony, if you haven't listened to that episode, definitely you should go back and dig that one up. Um, I mentioned in that episode, but I'll mention it again, that my introduction to Tony was long before he ever knew who I was. I remember being, I think, 14 or 15 years old. I saved 30 bucks and went to Harbor Surfboards in Seal Beach, California to buy my very first surf video. And I had in my mind that I actually wanted to buy the Endless Summer 2, and I had saved my money for that, but I had already seen it. And so when I got there, I saw this other video with Corey Lopez doing a big layback blowtail on the cover, and it was um, presented by O'Neill, but it was called Jacked. And it intrigued me enough to where I made the switch. Instead of buying The Endless Summer 2, I bought Jacked, took it home, watched that thing probably 200 times, and loved all the music selections, fell in love with Chris Ward through that, Rat Boy, Todd Chesser, a number of surfers. Um, and it was completely produced, filmed, and edited by my man, Tony Roberts. So that was my first introduction to Tony. But he has also had a lot of success pioneering um, a lot of different dimensions of surf photography. So, Tony, the legend, welcome back to the show, dude. Psyched to have you co-host Surf News and so we can get kind of your commentary on the modern, what's going on in the surf world. Sweet. Yeah. Um, let's kick off real quickly. I asked you, but I never got your, or I haven't yet gotten your response about uh, Sonny Miller passed away recently, and he's also kind of a legendary film maker in surfing. Did you know Sonny at all, or did you have any Sonny stories you could share with us? Yeah, actually, Sonny is a really good friend of mine, and uh, like everybody, I'm really, you know, trying to weather the passing of this storm. It's a tough one for us. Um, Sonny <clears throat> was in a very small group of photographers, filmmakers who actually could excel at the sport they were filming. He was an excellent surfer, really? a great skater back in the day, and I knew him from, you know, our teenage years. You know, we would always rub shoulders um, at Del Mar Skate Park. Um, he was part of a really prolific crew of guys actually from Del Mar itself, um, Steve Sherman and Todd Swank and gosh, this Chip Morton and this great crew of super creative surfer skater guys and he was kind of like the photographer of their crew of actually many of them were great photographers and filmmakers um, and we'd go down there and hang out with those guys and it was a great melding of the minds um, but as the years went on you know I'd always see Sonny in Hawaii and pass him in Indo and here and there but what a lot of people don't realize about Sonny Miller and about all that classic footage you see of his is the logistics of getting the shots that he would get, very few people could logistically attain. Okay. Like that Bawa footage of Curran 
mm-hmm. and searching for Tom Curran and before that the search and and all that type of stuff. Um, he was filming with heavy 16 millimeter cameras, battery belts, huge Miller fluid head tripods from the beach. How much weight are we talking about when you say heavy? Gosh, I'm not really good at estimating that type of okay. stuff, but hundreds of pounds really? of gear, Holy literally. crap. And so he's on many times rickety Indonesian um, fishing boats, and they pull up to maybe a 10 to 12 foot wave. And uh, how did he get all that gear to the beach, Dry. get set up, and not miss any of those classic waves? Right. Well, he would take a longboard, he would take a pelican case, which is a waterproof case to put your gear inside, a roll of duct tape, duct tape the pelican case to the nose of the board, and paddle in, finding his way through the reef, up onto the beach, getting up there, getting set up, dense jungle, malaria, and getting the shot. Crazy. So Jungle animals. Everything. Predators. Yeah. So when I think of Sonny Miller, I think of getting the shot. And you guys mentioned on a previous episode how his footage, basically, he didn't stand in the way of the topic. Right. And he just really exhibited the strengths and of the subject mm-hmm. without imposing his own look mm-hmm. or anything else on it and um, gosh I mean the word legend is thrown around a lot these days but this is one case where it definitely fits and uh, he'll be greatly missed well that was my assessment of Sonny and I never met him but just my assessment as a viewer was him getting out of the way of good surfing like you just said what is that an accurate assessment absolutely okay that's the way it looked to me, you know? It's just like freaking letting Tom Curran be the center of attention rather than trying to impose his own editing style or something silly like that. How are you going to beat Tom Curran in his true form? You know, you can't. So exactly. the best you could do is get out of the way. Well, if you look at Sonny Miller, he's, as I said, in a very small group of people, he's actually a surfer. Yeah. If you look at the surf photographers and filmmakers in our industry, 95% are not real surfers or, or skaters or... They're into it for a different reason. Um, That's because you're going to miss a lot of good waves. And so very few could could make the jump to actually being a professional, those who who tried it early. But Sonny Miller was one of those actual hard-working professionals who first and foremost was a surfer. Hmm. So filming with a topic like Tom Curran, I think he wanted that light to just shine as bright as possible on the subject. Right. That's awesome. Very cool, dude. Good, good. Sonny Miller story, man. Thank you. That's awesome. Um, We're obviously down here in Costa Rica, and I've been here for two weeks now. We've got to spend a bit of time together. Um, What we didn't really get to cover in the previous episode that we did together was just your pioneering of a lot of this region. You've been down here for 25 years now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so... um, Costa Rica's had kind of an explosion during that time, and probably a lot of our listeners have come down here and surfed spots that maybe you were one of the first surfers to discover. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? What was it like 25 years ago? And, uh, you know, how, it's, how has it changed over, over the years? Yeah, gosh. It's been just a wonderful chapter. You know, before that, I was spending most of my free time in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And... When I came to Costa Rica for the first time and 
um, surfed all the different coasts and regions and came up here to Guanacaste in the northern Pacific region. And um, there wasn't many roads, there wasn't much access, and all these amazing spots. And it instantly kind of reminded me of, of Indonesia, really? of the Bukit, but without all the people. Right. And the local people here reminded me a lot of the local Balinese people that I'd met, the villagers, who I identified greatly with and actually found my own true nature. Mm. And so I started hanging out with the local people here and they were telling me about different beaches where, you know, there was rough seas because that okay. was kind of from the fisherman's perspective. And so I started kind of looking at maps and looking at wind directions and tides and swell directions and actually discovered a couple spots that are now well-known places and gosh what can I say it was amazing what what's the process of discovering a spot like that especially with unpaved roads you know or, or no roads even at times break break down like one specific spot what was involved right well the one spot I can clearly say that I did discover it's a fairly well-known beach break now but I still you know would prefer not to say the name of it sure most people listening to this who've been here know where I'm talking about yeah but um, I rented a Toyota Land Cruiser okay. from a farmer in San Jose and then drove out here and would drive as far on the roads as I could, which were basically horse trails at the time, mm -hmm. and then hike the rest of the way. And So you use like machete <clears throat> in or? Absolutely. I uh, had a machete, backpack, surfboard, provisions, and uh, would, you know, basically hack my way through, uh, drive as far as I could. Sometimes that meant like the road would end and I would break down the fence of a farmer and drive on his land until I could get back onto the horse trail and mm. then when I came back you know put his fence back up and whatnot right. but um, my day of glory was definitely when I made it to this particular beach break and it was four to six feet and perfect nobody around and uh, I came back to uh, kind of where we all used to camp and a couple of my buddies were there and I was like oh man we got to go camp down at this beach and we ended up camping there for like three months and it was pretty much on the whole time and we had it for three years without another surfer that we didn't tell about it arriving and then you know word got out and it's you know gone through its different stages until now um, you asked about how it's changed well I think Costa Rica kinda had its boom during the early 2000s and it was actually pretty crowded around here and then it seems as though Nicaragua kind of stole Costa Rica's thunder and yeah. all the surf tourism moved north. And so I'd say since like 2011, the crowds here have been actually less hmm. than they used to be, contrary to, to what many people who just moved here right. think. Right. <laughs> but for those who've been here through a few chapters, it's actually the crowds here have gotten less Crazy. as the crowds have gotten bigger up in Nicaragua. And the waves down here are just as good as Nicaragua. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a beach break up there that's well known that's better than any beach break we have here. Sure. But take that beach break out of the equation and I'll take this coast right here. Yeah. Well, you talked about that pioneering experience. What year was that? That was like 1990. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. So about the same year that, that Lance discovered Lance's rights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, when you're talking about camping out there and pioneering it, what I always worry about is like, I'm on a trip like this, it's only two weeks long, and we'll go s check a spot. 
because we have the benefit of surf line and swell windows and all that kind of stuff. So we'll go check it expecting it to be good and it might not be good. And I could easily see just if we didn't know this was a, a already existing surf spot, I could easily see us stumbling upon it and just thinking, well, there's obviously no waves here, pack our bags and leave and never come back and check this spot again. So when you are that pioneer checking that spot for the first time, how long do you commit to like staying on this beach and deciphering the different swells, the different tides and all that kind of stuff? And also what type of provisions do you bring for that length of time? You know, how do you plan that thing out? Well, it's as surfers, we can pull up to a beach and see if there's potential. Okay. Immediately and see if it's a good setup or not. Um, beach breaks a little more tricky. Yeah. But what I have recognized in this region is a pattern okay. where a half moon shaped beach, rivers on the north and the south end of the beach, a rock outcropping bombora out the back in the middle of the beach. And this is a geographical or geolo geological uh, makeup that the best four beach breaks in Costa Rica have, the best two beach breaks I've been to in Panama have, and the best two beach breaks in Nicaragua that I've been to, they all have those components. Interesting. Yeah. So things that you can kind of recognize, but I have to admit that um, when I discovered that beach, if I wouldn't have seen it firing the first time I was there, I might not have gone back because it was a bit of work to get in there. Sure. Yeah, and we've been there a number of times mm -hmm. over the course of the last two weeks, and we've seen it in a lot of different carnations. That's right. And like show up in the morning, and it's like, oh, it's only knee high. Eh, let's just go out for the heck of it. And exactly. then within two or three hours, it's head high and barreling. Exactly. So, yeah. And as far as provisions go, um, you know, whatever makes you comfortable, you know. Definitely I would bring some wine, <laughs> <laughs> you know, food that I like that's that's packable and that has shelf life. Yeah. Um, water. Yeah. Um, if you like to smoke, you know, you bring different things to keep you comfortable and yeah. uh, it just turns into your own little paradise. And you can always fish, obviously, and there's vegetation that you can eat, I'm sure. I'm sure there is, but I not really that gnarly of a survivalist okay <laughs> i always would bring what i needed yeah and being a vegetarian it kind of limits those things well. that's true yeah in terms of fishing for sure interesting okay cool dude um i know there's a lot more to be discussed about that but we've got a lot of other topics we got to get to here you mentioned um lance's right and left i've been introducing a segment to the show called webland where it's just highlighting different things on the web that are worth watching Red Bull media production, I think, is becoming kind of the highlight of surf content, for me anyways. The production value that they do is just incredible. It's a different level. Um, the editing's a little bit flashy, but the quality of their content and their access to people in the industry is like second to none, really. So they've done the 21 Days series in the past, which I really enjoy, but they've also just introduced a four-part series called The Ripple Effect. And um, I would just recommend that listeners check that out. I'll post links to the four videos on surfsplendorpodcast.com. But they did a piece on the Witzig Brothers, which is kind of a media production team, if you will, out of Australia. They were involved with Tracks Magazine, but they also um, made a couple surf films and just documented 
70s and 80s surf culture in Australia. Uh, but just super interesting characters and really, I don't know, a bit of surf history that I guess I wasn't really familiar with previously. I had probably heard their names and I had seen a little bit of their work, but it was all peripheral from America, probably in Australia. It was like front and center, you know, but for me, I guess I was born in the 80s, so I was a little bit after their time. But this 15-minute little mini documentary that Red Bull did was just really insightful, and uh, and I really enjoyed it. They did one on the Cooley Kids. They did one on Lance's right and left. And then just most recently, they released a piece on Bob Hurley. Did you get a chance to look at that at all? I did. Um, thanks to you for sending me those links. Yeah. I wasn't familiar with this uh, series, but I agree. It's really well done. Yeah. And uh, the editing style is a, a little bit distracting mm -hmm. for me, but I think they're catering to a short attention span and I agree. keeping people's eyes on the screen instead of going off and playing a video game or yeah. hanging out with their avatar or whatever Cause they do these days. <laughs> with their avatar. <laughs> so 15 minutes is a lot to ask now in terms of a web clip, you know, so to hold somebody's attention that long, you're right. You got to make it like snappy. But, um, but to your point about you hadn't seen it, it's surprising that all the things that, all the media they produce kind of flies under the radar. I don't know if they probably have more Twitter followers than Quicksilver or somebody else because it's all these kids in middle America that drink Red Bull, so maybe they're the ones watching it. But just like in our core surf community, I don't feel like anybody talks about the Red Bull videos that they put out, you know? That's kind of strange because the content is so rich. It is. And I learned a lot watching yeah. each one. Yeah. You know, and I'm friends with Bob Hurley. And Are you? Yeah. And I learned a lot about that. It was like, wow. Seems like a rad dude. The raddest. I mean, I was already super psyched on him, but, you know, I got even a better look in, inside the guy. Where, what was your introduction to him or how do you know him from what world? Um, I know Bob Hurley from back in the Billabong days. Okay. You know, uh, he sponsored all the best, well, not all the best, but a lot of the best Santa Cruz kids that I used to shoot and especially when the wetsuits first started coming into play dude the 2001 zipperless front entry right that's right I remember that suit yeah Z it, the Acker brothers the Acker brothers Josh Loya yep uh, Mark right. Taylor uh, they were testing it for Mark Machado actually um, invented that suit okay and uh, you know Hurley's always had an eye for talent and on all different levels of the game yeah and so we collaborated early and often and He's just never changed. Yeah. He's just always been a, a core surfer, and, uh, you know, that, that piece really highlighted that. Yeah. He's, um, he seems so humble, you know? And it's like the people, there's a lot of people who are successful in life and make a lot of money or whatever, and, but the ones that I've always seen that are, like, truly at the top of the game, like the cornerstones of industry, you know, like those guys tend to be, more humble, not shameless self-promoters, not boombastic, and they tend to be just likable people, you know? And I think that's great. I think that says a lot. Well, definitely in his case. Yeah. I mean, there have been some pretty flamboyant company owners out there in the past that, yeah. that succeeded. Mm -hmm. But Bob Hurley, he has an eye for cool. Yeah. He has an eye for success. Yeah. The last time I saw him was super classic. I was shooting in Nicaragua on a beach break. I was way out on a, the end of a sandbar in a, a shade chair, which is a chair that I invented. It's a plastic chair. And I 
bolted on a PVC frame and then put tarps around it. Oh, yeah. So I could basically sit at the high tide line in my own little world and put the tarps down and eat my lunch and do my deal. Nobody could see behind me what I was doing and Not meanwhile good. just never leave the water's edge. Yeah. And uh, one day I was shooting just one client out on the edge of the sandbar and I see these people walking from like a mile away, like looking at me tripping on the chair and then they're coming a little closer, shooting cell phone photos of it. They get a little closer and finally I could see it's Bob Hurley. <laughs> and I'm like, Bob, what's up? He's like, DR. Wow. He's like, figures that's you. <laughs> I'm like, the Hurley chair, let's do this, what? <laughs> so if you guys ever see the, the Hurley shade chair out there. That'd be epic, dude. <laughs> they should call it the TR chair. Yeah, they should. Um, that's so funny, dude. Did what's interesting to me about him too is like or just people in the surf industry is when you find out more about them a lot of them started out as surfboard shapers like i did that interview with steve pesman for the show and i didn't know that about him previously that that's how he got his start with shaping no way yeah and I bob didn't know that either yeah bob hurley the same thing and i don't know it's kind of overlooked you know well thank god there's a bit of integrity left in this game. yeah 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 totally um so one another reason I wanted to kind of do a episode of Surf News with you was there's a few topics floating around the wor surf world right now that are related to surf photography, and uh, I thought you could be our expert panelist, so to speak, on those topics. So um, episode number three of Surf Splendor featured the 2013 Follow the Light Foundation. Um, which is kind of a photo contest that is put on in honor of Larry Flame Moore, legendary surf photographer. And, um, and they pick a winner every year. Like you basically submit your work, they pick a winner and they write, they give you a check. I think it's a $5,000 check last year. And that's supposed to go to help funding your uh, craft for the next year, travel expense, camera, that sort of thing. And, um, Morgan Mawson is one in the past um Duncan McFarlane there's some pretty big names in surf surfing who photographers who have become really well known who got their start through the Follow the Light Foundation so those finalists have just been announced and I wanted to kind of get your take on those guys but also uh maybe say a word about Larry Flame more this episode I don't want it to all be about people who have passed away but you've known a number of these guys and so I think it'd be you know it'd be a shame if we just glossed past Larry Flame more in this discussion uh what was your experience with him wow um he really formed my career did he absolutely um you know my early background was as a filmmaker yeah and then I started shooting photos to put on the boxes of the videos that I was making okay and then I started selling ads to O'Neill, and then the ad director or the art director at O'Neill, Mike Yankis, said, "Man, your photos are as good as what I'm seeing in the magazines. Let's let's get you in there." So he connected me with Flame. Which year, like approximately, was this? This is probably like 1987. Okay, so there's surfer and surfing probably surfer at that surfing. time. Okay, and it was definitely two different camps. Sure. And so when I sent my photos to Flame, um, he sent me back a very kind letter saying that he saw potential in there, but that there's a lot of technical improvements that need to be made for okay. my photos to be published. And uh, he sent me, I think, a box of film of like 10 rolls or something. Oh, really? Yeah, and said, you know, let's see what you can do and gave me some pointers. And so I followed his pointers, would send in the film, and he continually 
with nurturing my style to make it more like his look. What was his feedback exactly? What did he say? Basically, Flame always wanted front-lit photos where you could see the subject's face, where you could see the logos on the board, bright colors, get the guys to clean their wax. It was a very 80s aesthetic that he was after. And I was naturally um, drawn towards silhouettes, okay. backlit photos, backgrounds and foregrounds, kind of where surf photography's come in the last <laughs> chapter. Yeah, it sounds like it. But nevertheless, I wanted my photos published in Surfing Magazine, so I would cater to his criteria. Okay. And so basically what you would get, my end kind of look that came out in Surfing Magazine was a combination of my style, which was a skateboard style photo, trying to kind of get what Jay Grant Britton was doing in Transworld Skateboarding and Bryce Knights and Thrasher in the water. Hmm. And combining that with his front-lit, platinum lighting aesthetic that he was after. So, in the end, he really formed what was my style. Hmm. And, um, gosh, I don't know if it's my favorite flame story, but definitely the most uh, traumatic flame <laughs> story for me was there was a period when I was not getting paid as much as I thought I should have at Surfing Magazine. I felt like flame kind of held me down. A lot of the photographers were getting, you know, five times as much as I was, monthly salary. Um, yet, if there was a surfing magazine ad or a little cardboard pullout or whatever, it was one of my photos. Um, like, there was a point in time where they were kind of using my photography for the look of the magazine, and I felt like I wasn't being compensated. And basically, Steve Zeldin came along and got hired as editor of the magazine and I was basically on my way out and Zeldo called me up and said TR we, we don't want to lose you you know we want to keep you and I want to send you to Tavarua with Wardo and the Beshin brothers and Rufo and Dino and we want to give you a really big piece you know and maybe the cover if you guys score and so what do you think and I said how much he said, what? How much? He's like, dude, aren't you just stoked to go? I'm like, how much? I'm like, I know exactly how much Chang gets. I know how much Hornbaker gets. If you're going to send him on a trip like this, how much? And he threw out the same price that those guys would get on a trip. And I was like, perfect, let's do it. And so the moment that I accepted that with him, I knew I was screwed with Flame. Because mm. he had no part in this decision-making process. Yeah. That when Zeldo goes to Flame, he's like, oh, guess what? We're sending TR to Tavarua for X amount of money that Flame was going to blow his top. Yeah, yeah. So I went to Tavarua. We got epic waves. We scored. was so stoked. We flew to West Oz after that for another shoot, actually an O'Neill shoot. And I get, I believe it was a fax <laughs> back in the, at this point in time from Flame and it says, you blew it. Your 300's broken. Everything you shot from the boat's out of focus. There's a couple water shots, but you blew it. Like, and I hung up the phone or crumpled up the fax or whatever it was and 
looked at the crew because I was still with all the same guys, and I said, guess what, guys, I blew it. Everything's out of focus. And they were pretty bummed. Yeah, like everybody was like on different levels. And then Gavin came up to me and he like squeezed my shoulder. He's like, it's all right, buddy. Don't worry. He's like, we'll get him next time. You know, like Gavin was super cool and I was just crushed. Yeah. And I was thinking in my mind, I need to get another job. I could never imagine feeling like this again. Yeah. And I felt like this about a half dozen times during my sure, career. Sure, sure. I forgot a wing nut or something. Can't and nail them all day. Exactly. And blew the whole shoot. And so... Anyways, um, I get back to California and I, I get a fax and he says, hey, it looks like we might be able to salvage something from, from that Fiji trip. I'm just like, what? Flame, send me every single slide back. All the worst ones, because back in this day, you'd send, the, you'd send the unprocessed film. Yeah. So you didn't see it yourself. Right. Okay? So you're just trusting. Yeah. So it turns out I got the cover at like 12 pages and my photos were fine. And he was just messing with my mind. Shut up. Because he wasn't part of the, of the decision-making oh process. Oh, my gosh, dude. And That's brutal. Yeah. Now, I love Flame more than any man in the world. I mean, the guy gave me everything. Yeah. So I'm not disrespecting him in any way. Yeah, yeah. But that was his personality and his... Sense of humor, even. You sense know? of humor, I suppose. Totally. But it almost crushed my being. Oh, for sure, dude. And, of course, I lost a lot of credibility with a lot of writers, which yeah, I had a dozen or more of those over the years, which salted me out pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> That'll do it to you. Yeah. Um, well, with the Follow the Light 2014 finalists, uh, of everybody that submitted, they basically pick five finalists, and then... During the awards ceremony on July 29th, during the U.S. Open, they will select one winner. Um, the five finalists are Woody Gooch, who I think is Australian, Ryan Craig, which I think is Santa Cruz, right? That's mm -hmm. your hometown. Uh, Rainbow Estrada, Seth DeRolay, and Dane Grady. Guys who, some of those guys, I mean, we see published fairly regularly. They're fairly well known. And then some of them I've definitely seen on social media uh, and less through mainstream media. But have you reviewed the submissions and looked at their work? I did. You know, thanks for that link as well. What uh, do you think? Really great work. Really? Uh, I'm stoked and okay. inspired actually by all of them. Uh, Surfline photo editor, I don't know if he's picking a good representation of their work. Okay. Because um, you only get, you know, four or five photos to judge the photographer by. Right. And a good photo editor would have, I would imagine, five completely different photos. Yeah. So, um, besides that, the photography itself was, was rich and colorful and, and full of feeling. Mm. Um, but I did, uh, yeah, enjoy did, that. Did you, uh, did anyone, do you have a pick for a winner? I hate to distill it down to its simplest form, but of those guys submitted, when you looked at their uh, little bit of work that they had displayed, did you have a winner or a favorite image or something? I did. You know, from the... From that piece, it was 27 images, I believe, right. on, on Surfline. Yeah. Uh, but just judging on those alone, which again, you know, it's the photo editor's kind of dictating this contest. Yeah. And I'm not too sure that he's doing that great of a job. Okay. <laughs> but um, the best photographer out of those four, judging on those images, for me was Ryan Craig. Was he? Yeah. And uh, just he had 
the most variety. Yeah. And kind of an aesthetic towards the surfing more so than his look. Sure. Per se. Which, it's good to have a look, but I think you don't want to outshine the surfing. Right. Kind of like we were talking about with Sonny Miller. Absolutely. Yeah. Did, uh, do you know him personally? I've met him a few times. Okay. Um, I greatly admire him, and, uh, you know, he's, I feel like, in a way, I kind of pass a torch to Dave Nelson. Mm-hmm. And Dave Nelson's still, like, very prominent in surf media and whatnot, but perhaps Dave Nelson's slowly handing the torch off to uh, Ryan Craig. Yeah. But I think in the Santa Cruz photography realm, um, he's stepping up big time. Nice. Uh, my favorite image of the thing was actually one of his, too. It was the Kelly Slater at Backdoor image. Mm. Do you remember that? I did. That thing's I do. insane. It's a sick image. Um, for me, a little too abstract for, for that format. Yeah. Like, that could win an art show format more than a, a best surf photo format for me personally. Yeah. I have a little bit of Flames criteria still yeah, jingling you do. around <laughs> in the back of my mind, you know? So I, I do want to see a couple other uh, criterias fulfilled, not yeah. just the most artistic. Right. Um, but for me, my favorite image of the 27 images was by uh, Rambo Estrada. Which and shot? it was of Campbell McKegg. Okay. And uh, in New Zealand. Oh, okay. Yeah. And for me, overall, um, the background, the color, and the action combined to make it the strongest image. Yeah, I'm looking at that right now, too. Um, guy getting shacked on a right, basically. Overhead and a half right with background. Yeah, it's a beautiful image. I also love the fact that you can see like what the surfer sees in front of him. Yeah. Kind of exit point on the wave sort exactly. of thing. Yeah, you know, you're... Your take when I talk about uh, photography with you is always obviously very technical and you're seeing probably a lot more than I do. And when I kind of assess these things, it's sheerly emotion. You know, it's like I'm not even factoring in composition probably even at the very least. It's just what do I feel when I look at this image? And that Kelly Slater image at back door just looked so fresh and unique to me that that's what stood out. And um, we see so many perfectly composed photos nowadays, I think, too, that it almost falls on deaf ears in a sense, that like the freshness of this image is what stood out. Um, for the listeners, we'll post, obviously, all these images on surfsplendorpodcast.com, and you can find them at Follow the Light Foundation's website. Um, but this image of Slater, it's basically, uh, it's looking into the barrel, but the photographer, Ryan Craig's in the barrel with him. You can't even see any sunlight or anything, any daylight. It's purely inside the wave, looking deeper into the wave where Kelly's like behind the spit. So you just see him behind the mist, almost just a silhouette. It's all pretty dark, but it looks pretty treacherous and scary, but beautiful at the same time. So, um, so that was the image that I was looking at, but all in all, a good group of finalists, I'd say. Absolutely. How do you feel about the foundation at large? Like, is it a good thing for surfing? Do you have any criticisms of it? I think it's a great thing. Okay, you cool. know, And Flame, he really did refine a lot of photographer styles mm -hmm. and put them into a palatable medium. Yeah. Which is almost like taming a wild horse in a way, yeah. depending on 
on on the different people and like I was really fortunate enough to be on the same staff with Aaron Lloyd and Hornbaker and Chang and Don King and Hank you know all the surfing magazine team all flames guys you know just amazing photographers that all had their own style but we all had to kind of come within flames ramifications when you're hiring for a small business you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role and there's no faster or effective way than through linkedin jobs your time and capital are precious and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references. And now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. That's a great assessment of kind of his legacy is creating that kind of frame of reference for everybody to work within. And I think that's, um, I don't know, maybe that's kind of what the same learning curve that we're going through right now with social media and the way that professional surfers uh, promote their own image, you know, it's like, you don't really want to wrangle them in, but at the same time, when somebody says something out of line, you can tell that it's definitely out of line. And there is, there's a boundary somewhere, even though we haven't defined it, you know? Absolutely. So that's interesting. Um, how has, do you think you, you kind of referenced that, uh, the composition has changed over the years and, um, your initial style of silhouettes with foreground and background and stuff was what you started doing in flame kind of pulled you into front lighting and that sort of thing. And that maybe the styles have shifted back to your original method currently. Can you talk about how composition and style has changed over the years? What was acceptable when you first started getting into surf photography, you kind of defined and what's changed and what's acceptable now from yeah. your standpoint. I mean, it's, I love the direction it's come. How, you know? Do you? Absolutely. Because I'm first and foremost a surfer. Yeah. You know, and probably like an aerial surfer, you know, skate influenced. Um, so, I mean, these days you see like the most important thing is kind of the maneuver and the background and foreground. So you'll see a photo of Chippa Wilson doing like a, you know, eight foot high alley oop in front of a statue in India or something. And <laughs> right. In one foot surf and it's he was towed out the wave and it's onshore wind. But the aesthetics of the surfer it's like Nat Geo with action in the middle of it. Right. You know? Right. And the wave pool stuff with like Dion yeah. Agius and all this stuff. You know, I love it. You know, basically with the new technology and cameras, anybody can go out and shoot a perfectly technically 
sound photo. Yeah. So it takes that much more creative to creativity to step up and and be noticed. Right. So the direction that I've seen it go is a lot more peripheral stuff, a photo that tells a story, a photo that has the foreground, the background, not only the action, and you can get an entire feeling of what was going on in that moment, not only just surf porn, right, but more of a Nat Geo look. Mm-hmm. I think that's the direction it's gone, and I love it. Yeah, good. And um, what elements of the photography do you think help translate that story let's say the story of the day you know well gosh you know it's like if you've got like let's say it's a you know i see these great photos from the east coast you know maybe it's you could have a photo taken from the beach looking straight out with an autofocus 600 lens of Mm -hmm. of some guy in new jersey doing a top snap Mm -hmm. okay or you could have the photographers stepped back on the atlantic city boardwalk and he's got guys like selling hot dogs in the foreground and and people playing on the beach you know, on the sand, you know, and then the guy's boosting an air, and then in the background, there's a pier with guys fishing off it. Yeah. And it really tells the story of what life's like in New Jersey. Right. You know, I recently had a photo editor um, reject some of my photos because he told me the foreground and background were too busy. Hmm. And basically, that's just not reading into a storytelling photo. Right. You know, it's short sightedness to go, oh, I just want to see the action. You know, there's a lot of different styles of photos out there, but if you can tell a story and have the action presented in there, you know, you've got Dion Agius busting a huge air, and there's all these supermodels in the foreground on lounge chairs, and, right. you know, a lifeguard in, in the back all ripped out with a whistle in his mouth. Yeah, it's yeah. like, it might not be my bag, but just the fact that they're getting that creative and putting that much forethought into it and then nailing the shot, yeah, that's what I respect. So hard to nail that shot, dude, with that amount of uh foreground and stuff going on to have him stomp the air in that section is gnarly not really no no not for me really? if i had him and those models right simple simon yeah crazy dude um well uh speaking of chippa you mentioned gopro recently added chippa to the team dude so gopro has been pretty aggressive in uh I don't know, the way that they market to the surf community, I'd say, and the surf community has really benefited that brand, I would say, tremendously, the, the type of imagery that they're getting. But they have a couple of team writers. They started out of the gates with Kelly Slater, um, I think Josh Kerr, Anthony Walsh is kind of one of their key guys who's done amazing things for the brand. But they recently added Chippa Wilson, Shane Dorian, which is a great pick, Eretz Aramburu, and Jamie O'Brien. And I know Jamie's been using the product for a long time and producing amazing imagery, but they officially added him to the team, meaning he obviously is probably getting paid now by them. Um, Side note with GoPro, too, is the stock went public about three weeks ago, and um, it's done really well. It's actually been a little bit volatile, but it's done really, really well. So for listeners who aren't involved in that, uh, but would like to be, keep your eye on that. You're welcome to pick up some shares and become a co-owner of the brand and uh, benefit from its growth. And then Kelly Slater, who was one of their initial athletes, took part of his um, his salary with the company was stock options. And so when the company went public, he sold one-third of his stock options and he was able to net $1.2 million dollars 
from one third of his stock options. It opened at, uh, I think, 24 bucks, and it closed at 10 bucks more than that, like 33 bucks or so. And it's sitting around 43 bucks right now. So if he would have held out just for another week or so, he could have doubled his money probably and made 2.4 million instead of 1.2. But needless to say, he's doing all right, and uh, he's got two thirds of his shares still intact. So he can sell those whenever he feels the need to. But uh, pretty gnarly numbers for GoPro, um, just from a business standpoint. And I think the owner behind GoPro is a really savvy guy. Surfer Magazine's interviewed him a couple of times. I think 60 Minutes did a, a really nice piece with him a while back, right before they went public. And uh, he just seems super savvy, super smart. He's a surfer originally. He had a couple of failed upstart businesses, which I think is really important in life, you know, to fail with some big numbers. Uh, but he's kind of reconciled and done really well with GoPro. And so I think they have big things ahead of them. Um, also, another photography conversation kind of for you to chime in on. What are your thoughts? I know you work, you use GoPro, right? I've seen you using it a bit. What are Absolutely. your thoughts on the camera? I love it. Do you? Yeah, GoPro's great. Um, I was fortunate enough to meet up with the guys who were testing the first ones. Really? Yeah, in Puerto Escondido. Okay. And they were using a lot of Latin riders, Gabriel Vieran yeah. and uh, Ramon Navarro and some other guys. And uh, I saw the guy who, who they sent down to kind of outfit the boards and stick it on and whatnot. And I took him aside and said, hey, man, I want to get involved in this. And he hooked me up with the company, and I've been getting cameras from him ever since. Wow. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. I love the product. I mean, it's, you know, they keep advancing. Right. Technically, it just gets better and better. And, uh, you know, there's just, your imagination is the limit of the, as how creative you can get with this thing. Yeah. Well, what are the, what are the strengths of the camera and can you identify any weaknesses in it? Sure. I mean, the strengths are, of course, its size, mm -hmm. you know. Like when I'm shooting uh, fisheye photos, you know, with my still camera, I mount a GoPro on top and I'm getting video of everything that that I'm shooting photos of right. with basically no additional weight. Right. Very and little. It's, it's a fisheye lens on the GoPro yeah. too, right? So it's the exact same angle as, as my still camera. Okay. And a lot of times when you're that close, spray is kind of the enemy. It'll ruin the photo. Mm -hmm. But in video, it looks quite dramatic if someone sprays the lens. Sure. The spray falls and you see the guy make the air or whatever. So, yeah. um, you know, I love the size and, and the, uh, the portability mm -hmm. aspect of it. Um, the drawbacks and, and how it needs improvement is um, I would like to be able to adjust the settings manually. Okay. Because everything's pretty much auto. It's okay. auto exposure and... And um, I'd like to be able to set that manually hmm. um, with controls from the outside of the housing. Right. You know, I'm sure they're working on that. But I'm, I think the first couple ones they made kind of dummy proof. Yeah. But now there's probably enough professional photographers that are using it for skydiving and, right. you know, the, the best of all these different, you know, types of extreme sports that... They really do require manual settings. You can't have auto. That's a good point. It seems like initially, you're right, they marketed it towards just user-friendliness, basically. You can't mess it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what about, I've heard um, people who certainly aren't uh, professional photographers or even skilled photographers, probably, complain about 
the fish eye and just how close you have to be when you're using it. Is there any practicality, do you think, in using a different type of lens on it or even like a zoom function? Is that even possible? Well, first of all, of course, you'd have to have a viewfinder so you could look through the camera. Yeah. Um, but that takes skill. Mm -hmm. And 99% of, of the people with GoPros on their boards are kooks with no <laughs> skill at all. And so they, I think it's perfect for them yeah. the way it is. But um, there's also a lot of public, you know, like just that are a little more, you know, photo minded. Yeah. That could benefit greatly from being able to control um, the image yeah. a lot more. Well, it's crazy how good the quality of the image is for how inexpensive the camera is. It know? really is. Yeah. It really is. It's insane. And I love the fact that it puts a camera in every single person's hands because I really think that it's not the arrow, it's the Indian. Hmm. And that one's eye and creativity and desire and passion is what makes a great image. And I don't think that that should be default to somebody who can afford the gear. Right. So that's what I love most about the GoPro camera is that it forces everybody to do something really good or else you're out of the game. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, uh, it seems like just because of the size of the body of the camera itself, it also limits its functionality. Like you're talking about a lot of manual settings. I'm wondering how many dobs and uh, or knobs and dials can you actually put on a tiny body to make all those minute adjustments, you know, limited by physical, I don't know, body at some point. Well, that stuff's it's, they can do it. Okay. You know, basically it's, it's just one, it's, the size doesn't change at all. Okay. It's just another little knob that, that you can press or twist or, yeah. or whatever it is. Um, but the, it really wasn't required for the entry level. Sure person who's just throwing one on the nose of their fun board yeah which i appreciate you uh bringing that up the other day <laughs> which was something oh, i said such a good laugh it was something i said on a previous show which was like there's never been a greater disparity in surfing between people who use a given product <laughs> be with a GoPro, it's either the top level professional athlete that's using it or the absolute bottom rung rookie novice who's using it you know there's very few guys who are like moderate to good surfers who have that thing mounted on the nose of their board it's so true it's so true and i might amend that a little bit with the handheld version there's a couple guys with a handheld version that are trying to get barreled that are okay but the one that's mounted on the nose of your board looking at you in the face <laughs> it's like when you see that guy coming down the beach with a mount on his surfboard you're like oh don't have to worry about him taking any of my waves. So true. Because, first of all, that angle looking back at you, even if you're getting barreled at pipeline, not a cool angle. No. Like, that's a useless footage. Much less if you're doing a cutback and one foot, you know, mushy beach break. But if you can barely stand up, it's all you got. That could be, actually, that's a good point. That guy's probably psyched on that footage if you could barely stand up. Absolutely. And I actually have seen footage recently of a dad taking his, like, two-year-old son surfing on a longboard, you know, holding him up, like, and that is priceless footage. So. Christmas card material. Totally. So we're, we're bagging on him, but there's, of course, exceptions to every rule, I guess. Absolutely. But um, awesome. So, yeah, GoPro enthusiasts participate. If you don't have a camera, go get one. 
uh, I will thank you as a stockholder. But also, if you just want to benefit from their rise, take it as a stock tip. Unless they fail, then don't blame. Don't come blaming me for that stock tip. So you want to talk about ASP, dude? Yeah. All right. Psyched. So I get psyched. I get mixed feedback on ASP talk, dude. Like people email and they're like, "Love the show, hate ASP talk." Other people are like, "Devote episodes toward to you know contest recaps." So I'm kind of on the fence on what we do. How can that be that polarizing? I don't know. I guess guys aren't into competitive surfing sometimes. Fair enough. Yeah, but I think really what we need to do is not really dissect. I don't know, heat-by-heat breakdowns, but there's some bigger themes that come out of these contests that apply to surfing at large. So that will be the focus of our ASP talk today. Cool. Uh, The strict nuts and bolts of J-Bay were, is an amazing contest. A lot of lay days, but they got amazing waves. Um, Mick Fanning won the comp against uh, Joel Parkinson, which two Cooley kids, childhood buddies and they end up in the final together at really awesome j-bay they did a heritage clash of the legends heat if you will which was tom curran versus aki which in their entire career surfing against each other i think they had seven wins and losses each and they were even so this was kind of the ultimate rubber match and tom curran won he got a 10-point ride and then, like, backed it up with an 807 or something like that. So I thought that was pretty incredible. It was the first time we saw Tom Curran claim a wave probably in his life. So what are your thoughts? Oh, man. Just fills my heart with joy to see those guys not only competing but ripping. Yeah. I mean, they would have won many heats against the top 44. Um, but, gosh, you know, just... Curran and Aki, it's just, it just doesn't get any better than that. No, it doesn't. And, uh... Who was your pick? I mean, it was Curran. Curran won it that, <laughs> that day, you know? Who, but going into the event, who was your pick? Curran. Not necessarily. Okay. Uh, I didn't have a pick going in. Oh, okay. You know? But, um, shoots, I mean, Curran won it fair and square, and he... In the post-heat interview, he said that he was saying hi to a particular friend that that wasn't a claim. No way. Yeah. Do you so think he, he was serious? I think he was trying to unclaim his oh, claim. Oh, okay. <laughs> which is pretty classic. Classic current, dude. So, for the listeners, like, even Martin Potter said on the webcast, he's like, I've been with Kern, like, around him my whole life, and I've never seen him claim a wave. But on this wave that he got a 10 for, he's getting barreled. And before he comes out of the barrel, you could see his left hand, his front arm basically, come out of the curtain and start like waving towards the beach. And then he exits with that and his hands up the whole time, waving, claiming, but waving at the beach, like literally wiggling his wrist, waving. It's classic. It's not, it's like not like a heroic claim. It's like a cheesy princess kind of claim, you know, <laughs> like Cinderella at Disneyland. So it, it suited Curran so well because it was almost comical, but it was a sick wave undeniably. So it was just radical all the way around. Absolutely. But there is um, what we call Curran claims. And it's when you is come there? out. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's when you come out of a barrel and you just kind of like 
tweak your nose. You know, you just kind of like get the water out of your nose. Okay. You know, that's a current claim. Okay. And there's another one where he kind of like gets his rat paws up, you know, towards his chest and does a little weird shimmy shake. Really? Kicking out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a few of those. If you go back through the search videos, you'll see. Okay. It's not your standard like Brazilian like double fister. It's a yeah. more subtle kind of artistic claim. Interesting. I was unaware of the current claim. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to go dig it up, dude. We're gonna find some, put them on the website. <laughs> Do a little compilation. Yeah, for sure. Current claims, dude, I like it. Hashtag. Um, what are your thoughts on the event as a whole? Do you have any any highlights or lowlights you wanna discuss? Gosh, J-Bay is just a highlight. Just yeah, to know. see surfers link it all together. Yeah. You know, it's like, we love to see all the different events where they can bust the moves, but J-Bay is really where the, com the combining of the moves makes the score, mm -hmm. which is, that's surfing at its best. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And there's not a lot of waves nowadays on tour where they allow, I shouldn't say there's not a lot of waves, but it's kind of been overlooked as part of the judging criteria, that element, you know? And Jay Bay's a location where it just forces them to link maneuvers. Together. So true. So, um, I'm gonna be doing an episode upcoming for the listeners. You can anticipate this one, this episode with a former ASP judge kind of dissecting a heat between Jeremy Flores and um, Sebastian Zietz, which was a controversial heat because when Jeremy Flores lost, he threw a bit of a tantrum, a rage tantrum, and was subsequently suspended from a couple of upcoming events. So we'll get into that in the next episode, and uh, the name of that episode is going to be called Judgment, J-Flow versus Seabass. And we're going to dissect that heat again with my co-host being a former ASP judge, and we're going to discuss a lot of elements of the judging criteria and um, if it's even possible to eliminate subjectivity and just some topics that are always come up whenever a controversial heat comes up. So look forward to that episode, but Tony and I will discuss it a little bit here. I know you had some thoughts on it, Tony, that you wanted to share. What are your thoughts on that heat? Absolutely. Well, um, knowing that we were going to talk about it today, I dissected it in, in the ASP uh, heat analyzer. Yeah. And, man, I've got to say that uh, I thought that it was a fair call. Oh, okay. Really? one. Absolutely. Okay. Um, you know, basically, Flores got a 7.6 and a 5.93. Seabass mm -hmm. got a 7.0 and a 6.67. Okay. Um, I felt like Seabass's first wave was a little underscored. Oh, really? Yeah, he got a 7.0. He blew tail, got a little barrel that came out, in addition to a couple nice, solid snaps. Uh, Jay Flores, Jay Flores' first wave was a 7.6, and he basically did three or four of the same turn. Um, and a couple half hacks kind of mixed in that um, I didn't think was as good of a ride as, as Seabass's. Mm -hmm. And then in the end, Seabass uh, is 6.67. It was somewhere between a 6 and a 7. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's pretty tight call, but I think that he got the score that he deserved. And um, the controversy was um, Jay Flores going up to the judging tower and offending uh, and, and threatening a judge, which is in my opinion, completely unacceptable. Yeah. Uh, but what makes it, in my opinion, in this particular case, ridiculous is that it, it, it could have gone either way. Right. It's one thing if you just blew the guy out of the water. Yeah. But he didn't. Right. And in my opinion, after watching it, really studying it, I don't think he won the heat. Right. So 
gosh, you got to pick your battles in this world, you know, <laughs> yeah, and, you and especially when you've had prior altercations and, and you could lose a couple of events, he's not going to be able to surf Chopu, which he's always on my fantasy team at Chopes. And he's already on the bubble for not requalifying. So it, it's, it's tragic, you know, I'm really bummed about that situation for him. I'm a big fan of his surfing and, um, man, I wish he wouldn't have done that. Yeah. Well, what I was interested to hear you, um, talk about too is just aesthetics in surfing and how that does or doesn't factor into the judging criteria what are your thoughts on that and how does it apply to this heat i know you're a big well, style guy yeah i think that it's basically the judging criteria needs to be really established and i think it was in like 2011 they started scoring real high for maneuvers mm -hmm. you know like uh medina was getting you know, nines for doing two air reverses on one wave, and if winning. I'm not mistaken, yeah. winning events. Yeah, yeah, if I'm not mistaken, that was the year that Jadson Andre qualified, doing a lot of that same type of surfing. He and beat Kelly in Rio, I think, the year before. Correct. Doing the same one-trick pony air reverse every heat over and over, and then wins the event. Exactly. Yeah. And they were giving super scores for these progressive maneuvers, which in my opinion is the most important thing, but it needs to be done properly. Right. And... They reeled it back in because they'd gone too far one direction. Yeah. And the speed, power, flow criteria now is dominating all the scores, mm -hmm. which is fine. But if that's the criteria, something needs to be added for aesthetics. Right. I don't know if it's an, a separate point, like in ice skating, where there's a technical uh, judge that adds in an extra score all the way around. But there should be the, if it's speed, power, flow. And if you can't just go out and bust a huge air and win the heat over a carve, which should be pretty cut and dry if it's best maneuver wins. Yeah. But if it's speed, power, and flow, then something needs to be added to the criteria for aesthetics. Mm -hmm. Because um, if Adriana D'Souza, you know, gets a clean wall and, and just hacks the heck out of the thing, you can't deny what his board did was a 9.5. But what his body did, if there's a separate aesthetic scale, he might get a two on a scale of one to ten. Right. Whereas if it was a close heat and Parco lost by half a point and then his aesthetics point, he got a nine out of one to ten, Parco would win the heat. Right. Now, speed, power, flow is, is pretty much all you're going to judge on or the, the mainstay of it. Aesthetics needs to be factored in. Sure. Now, in my opinion, I'd rather see progression as the judging criteria. We did a contest here in Panama in 2011 with Quicksilver. It was called Conquistadores de Dos Mares, the conquerors of, of two seas, because mm -hmm. we did it in the Pacific and the, and the Atlantic, which mm -hmm. was a little bit of a, a novelty. But the judging criteria for the event, Kelly Slater and Magna Martinez came up with. And it was simply, each day there were three first place winners, and each got a, a cash prize of $1,000. And it was best barrel, best air and best maneuver so basically what you got was when guys were taking off on a wave looking down the line if they didn't see the opportunity for an arrow or a barrel they pretty much didn't even drop in if you were to take off and do float snap combos all the way down the line you wouldn't even get a score worthless worthless and so basically the result was all these surfers in the event were getting their barrel getting their maneuver and then the guys who didn't normally do airs were busting out these huge airs and making them hmm. in their heats because they're such good surfers and so competitive that they knew that was the third final score that they needed. 
to to kind of make the trifecta, mm -hmm. and they and at the end of the day there would be an overall winner that had the highest point total of air, maneuver, and barrel. Hmm. And then at the end of a it was a five day event. At the end of the five days, they, they added up all the points, and then there was a final with the four highest placing point totals. And then they did the same criteria for the final. There was an overall final, and um, Adam Hernandez won it. Um, the overall thing, and it's because he was busting the meanest airs, the best maneuvers, and the best barrels. Hmm. And I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah never I was heard covering. Of that. Yeah, when I was interesting. When I was covering the event, I thought it was pretty cool and everything. But it wasn't until I returned and I was sitting at home watching the webcast with my buddy Brad Hirsch, who's just one of the brightest minds in surfing, and we just love to watch the webcast and bounce all these ideas off each other. And I was frothing to him about the what I consider the genius of this criteria that Magnum and Kelly came up with. And we're watching bells. And it was like six to eight foot, slightly onshore, kegging like just crumbly walls. And it was Parco versus Josh Kerr. And they were ripping these waves, just like smashing it, coming down, smashing again, floater, smashing it. But I told Hirsch Dog, I was like, bro, can you imagine if this had the same judging criteria as Conquistadores de los Mares? That Kerr would like be going for eight to ten foot high alley oops on these waves and stomping them and stomping them. Yeah, and then Parker would have to step it up, which he would because he's just yeah. that good. Totally. And of course, that day you wouldn't be going for the barrel score, but you basically you look for the best ramp, and if it's not a good air section, then you do a tail whip or a different maneuver, and that's. Basically, the best maneuver scores were yeah. scored on waves that guys thought they were going to be able to do an air on. Mm. So but it could just as well be a big gouging turn. It very well could yeah. be. But very rarely is a is just a huge carve going to beat a tails out nose pick or something. It, it but could. Maybe a J, and maybe a J-Bay or Bay Bells it would. would. Yeah, exactly. Without a doubt. Right. Um, so that being said, I thought, wow. Can you imagine for the spectators, yeah. for the media... For the surfers, for everybody, how great that would be as far as the brand, as far as the product of ASP. Yeah. Because if you're not a surfer and you tune in and you watch it in a speed power flow, it's not really going to make that much sense to you. Right. You're not going to be able to tell the difference between Jordy Smith and, and Parco. Yeah. Interesting. I like that. I, I'm glad you brought that up. I had never heard about that. Um, so... One thing that stood out to me, uh, my pick for the event was Jordy Smith, as was a lot of people's, because his free surfing leading up to it was so incredible, and the wave just suits him so well. Uh, he ended up losing in round three to CJ Hobgood, and did you happen to see Jordy's Instagram post after the fact? I didn't. Okay, I'm going to read it to you right now, and you give me your thoughts. Um, Jordy Instagrammed out, a huge congratulations to CJ Hobgood for surfing with extreme confidence and determination. I was feeling like the greater surfer in that heat, but it goes to show that you can never count your opponents out. He had a plan and did not move left or right of it, knowing what he, what he could do and trusting in his ability. He pulled me slightly down the point and out of my usual position. Excellent work on his behalf. As much as I wanted to win JB, as much as I wanted to win J Bay, 
and it's the one event that I have an upper hand over, I truly respect all the competitors for everything they do and all the efforts they put in. Hard work pays off. To all the spectators and fans, thank you so much for your support. This is another learning curve for me, but there will always be next year. Best luck to CJ Hobgood and, of course, to the guy staying with us, Josh Kerr. Take it all the way. End quote. So I read that early morning, one morning down here, and I was like, you know, I mean, is it a, it's a little bit of a backhanded compliment, it feels like, but maybe it isn't. feels a little bit like a humble brag on his behalf, like I'm the best surfer out here. But I have pretty delicate sensibility when it comes to just people's personality, you know, and little things offend me. So I'm wondering if that's what it is with this. It's just my delicate sensibility. Or is this offensive, you know? Is, it, it seems gracious, but the graciousness is wrapped in a very kind of self-promoting or, I don't know, egotistical kind of envelope. What are your thoughts on hearing that? I believe it's your delicate sensibilities. Okay. Um, at the end of that, when you finished, my reaction was, what a class act. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, I it, had the exact opposite. It was either, like, my reaction was, wow, did he come up with, with that himself, or, or is he being coached? Wow. Because, I mean, I think that he ticked all the boxes for me. I mean, most guys aren't even probably going to tweet anything. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, so, they're just crying it out. Um, for me, Jordy was my pick. Yeah. Um, in the contest, and one of my favorite surfers, and so I love the opportunity to just get a little glimpse inside his mind and look around and and see what what he's thinking, what he's working with. Yeah. So I'm well, super psyched on on Twitter itself, and and for jo- Jordy tweeting, so that we get that perspective. Right. Well, let me ask you this then. Um, it does give you insight into his personality. And every time I get insight into Kelly Slater's personality, I'm bowled over by how thoughtful, insightful, intelligent he is. And that glimpse into Jordy's personality makes me think that he doesn't really have what it takes to be a world champ, basically. Like, he's a great surfer. Forget the fact that it's rife with punctuation and grammatical errors, you know, as most professional surfers' Instagrams are. But it's it's like a kind of a, a teenage mentality of dealing with loss, in a sense. Of like, I'm the biggest and the best, and I was going to come in here and stomp the competition. But I guess, you know, occasionally somebody else pulls me out of my game and, and is the better man. Whereas I've never heard Kelly Slater be boastful like that. Kelly easily could say he's the best everywhere he goes. He's won 11 world champs, but I've never once heard him say that, you know? So I think, I don't know, it's just like, what does it take to be a world champ? It takes consistency, it takes humility, it takes perseverance. Those aren't things that were showcased in that, that you know, humble brag of his. I, I don't know. I totally see your point, and uh, that's super valid. However... I disagree. Everything Jordy said was true. He was the best <laughs> surfer out there. And and CJ did win on tactics, yeah. not on surfing. Yeah. And basically what it takes to be a world champ is winning the tour. Yeah. You might be Tom Curran, you can't even do an interview. Yeah. You might be Sean Thompson and be the best ambassador to the sport of all time. Yeah. There is no protocol for being a world champ. Right. 
And Kelly Slater has been the best ever. And his humility combined with his ability is unparalleled. Yeah. But I don't think that's a prerequisite. You're, you're probably right. And you're absolutely right when you say everything he said is true. It was true. He was the best surfer, and he should have beat CJ. He's a better surfer than CJ, period, almost anywhere in the world, you know. Um, and I guess when you look at boxing, you know, the guys who – the biggest icons of the sport are guys who are super bombastic and egotistical, you know, Mike Tyson and Muhammad Ali, greatest fighter in the world, you know, so. Too far in the other direction, right. boxing. You know, yeah, my exactly. friend Luke Rockhold is coming up in the MMA ranks. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Matt Rockhold's brother. Yeah. And he's just slaughtering fools. And basically, he's the most humble, coolest guy ever, but he's required to get up there in the weigh-in and talk smack. It's, right. It's the format. Right. And so, surfing, the format's too far in the other direction. Yeah. You're criticized for, I mean, telling the truth sometimes. Sure. If it sounds in any way egotistical, but... Um, I think Jordy Smith did a great job on that tweet, and uh, and I think that C.J. Hobgood, I mean, hats off to him for taking him out. Oh, I know. What a win. C.J.'s had a renaissance, dude. It's really incredible to watch. So amazing. So on a side note, they're making a documentary, a C.J. and Damien documentary. Have you seen any of that? No. It's on Kickstarter. Like, they're asking for help funding it. Not C- I mean, C.J. and Damien aren't behind the documentary they're not producing it they're just the subject of the documentary but whoever the production team is is asking for people to contribute money um which i don't feel any obligation to do or incentive to do for some reason but i would like to see the documentary be made oh me too because it in the the trailer is done really well and it kind of showcases their struggles you know in terms of like owning homes and then being on tour and losing your sponsor and maybe having to rent out your house and move your family and all that kind of stuff but also it it showcases their rivalry where it's just a lot of hatred towards one another i mean pure love but a lot of hatred at times too so i think that's a really interesting dynamic um to wrap up the asp talk the u.s open actually starts today the day that we're recording this which is saturday july 26th um so more to come on that. And then Tanner Godowskis won the wild card entry spot into the Hurley Lowers Pro this year. That's worth noting. They do they run a trials event um, at a different location in San Clemente where I think it's 16 surfers. And Tanner Godowskis won that to be the single uh, wild card out of that contest that comes in. So I think they're doing the video format that they did last year too where you submit a video and then viewers online vote last year dane reynolds won that so sick yeah anytime a good gets out there to spread the peace and love and positive attitude it just warms my heart positive that's vibe what, warriors dude bro that's what the surfing needs more of yeah seriously love those guys they're doing a killer job with it um they've got like a positive vibe warriors instagram now i think where no they're way. they're like message us and we'll send you stickers so they're just mailing out positive vibe warrior positive vibe warrior stickers out to people around the world oh man i gotta get on the program we had a, a friend down here this past week who lives in san Clemente, and she was saying that the godowskis brothers do stoke a which is a contest down in san Clemente, and they get all of their sponsors to contribute goodies for the goodie bag, which are significant, like a brand new pair of Vans, brand new sunglasses, like really, you know, the thing's probably worth a couple hundred bucks per goodie bag, and they limit it to 100 
entries into the contest. So 100 grommets get to enter the contest. No contest fee, completely free. The Gudangs coach all the kids up before their heats. They go out in the water with them even, like, and push them into waves and coach them into waves and stuff like that. It's like a complete free-for-all. But there is a judging criteria, and people do win. But it's a Stokerama, and the mom, whose kid was uh, participating in it, was saying it's, like, the best community, you know, thing to do. Like, all the parents love the, the Godowskis brothers for doing it, and the companies that support it just donate a 100 pairs of shoes, you know, or whatever. So it's pretty intense investment on their standpoint but pretty rad thing that's what surfing yeah. needs totally the 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 average surfer attitude is i'm over it right freaking this is lame no the average surfer attitude should be this is rad i'm stoked yeah go the goodangs yeah how do you feel about tanner as a comp competitor in the lowers comp freaking kills it kills you it. know and it's basically just the desire in his surfing you know in every turn it just comes out yeah and, he's a uh, wily competitor absolutely and you know it's just you can't beat stoke no you can't he um lately he's been looking good i know he's made the finals there before and i think lost against miguel pupo in the final a couple years back but um i saw him surfing in the low the los cabos open of surf it's six star event down there he's riding these channel islands epoxy boards that looked so sparky and lively lively um, Swallowtails, his surfing was better than it's ever been. And I know he was super close to qualifying for the CT about two years ago. So I would love to see him do well in this event, get some points, and maybe get back on tour. Or get on tour for the first time, I should say. Um, I think that's it in terms of our main surf news topics. But we do have Duke and Kook and must-see moment. Are you prepared for this? Yeah, let's right. do this. All right, dude, why don't you start us off? Let's do, you want to do Kook first or Duke first? Oh, wow, I'm up, I'm, I'm up to bat? Shoots. Um, do you want to be? Yeah. All right, let's, let's do Kook. Okay, Just, who's your you Kook know. of the Week? And then I'll give you mine, and then we'll do Duke's. My Kook of the Week is dubstep. What? <laughs> when used in a surf video. <laughs> oh, dang. Now, dubstep, late night, East Berlin, best music ever. Okay. So it's all about context. All about context. Surfing, it's so visual and musical and drum machine with like keyboards, no matter how groovy you think it sounds, it doesn't. <laughs> it's weak. It's horrible. Is there a specific edit that fueled this ire before? Yeah, uh, it is. Which edit? Every single one I watch almost these days, okay. like half the intersection, pretty much anything with a drum machine yeah. does not work. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's subjective and, uh, you know, there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat, yeah. but um, there's all different types of music. It doesn't have to be one particular type, but surfing is musical. Mm -hmm. Dubstep isn't. Mm. I like it. I like it because I agree that that music sucks. Um, I um, hugely credit you with influencing a lot of my musical selections in my limited kind of surf video production career and also just on this podcast choosing music 
that sets moods and that sort of thing because like I was saying Jacked was one of the first video I bought and I loved the music I brought my boombox up to the speaker of the television and hit record and play at the same time to just have the soundtrack from Jack to listen to on my Walkman, you know, when I was playing hacky sack or whatever, going about my daily life as a teenager. That's rad. Yeah, dude, that fish track that opens up the movie was amazing, you know? Yeah, the video before that I made for O'Neill was Ozone. Yeah. And we had, like, reggae, rap, yeah. hip-hop, jazz, uh, you know, rock. You know, we had Bad Brains on there. Mm -hmm. Like, basically, a lot of people don't realize how all this music got to surfing. It was that video. And basically still, and what are we now? 2014, 15, and people are just starting to use that type of music in, in, in videos, which was in 1989. Yeah. Well, that, in Jack, do you use a Red Hot Chili Peppers song, like, years before they ever hit, you know? So that was pretty... Uh, forward thinking on your part about ahead of the curve i'd say yeah a lot of firsts yeah incredible so yeah i mean surf so much of my enjoyment of surf videos has to do with the type of music that's playing or you know so i agree with you dubstep sucks don't use it unless you're dancing in a club in east berlin um so for me my kook of the day i'm gonna call myself out on the kook of the day david lee scales kook of the day right here and I'll tell you why, and I'm going to allow you to uh, vindicate me, maybe, and relink, take my title away. The reason why I'm calling myself the kook is, last episode I did of Surf News with Tom Resvin, um, one of the segments was about Alan Sarlow, and uh, he was being sued, basically, for transmitting an STD to a woman. And you can go back and listen to that episode if you want. But I was kind of conflicted after the fact, because it's such a gossipy topic, and I used it as a springboard to kind of discuss fidelity in surfing. And now professional surfers are traveling with their families and some of them are still partying. And like, how realistic is it to be faithful on tour if you're a married man, you know, and you're traveling the world and groupies are throwing yourselves at, themselves at you. And that's something that we deal with as traveling surfers. So I thought it was a, a topic that was worth discussing. And the Sarlo thing was timely that we could springboard off that news topic into this bigger topic but in hindsight i just felt kind of bad like talking crap about a fellow surfer you know and i don't know sarlo personally but it, i just felt like it was kind of airing his dirty laundry in a sense it was i mean the the story's already out there and it's on the internet and i saw it on facebook so i wasn't the the primary source for airing it but i was still part i was a cog in the wheel and so i don't know i just felt a bit of shame about it on the flip side you know, this is freaking a podcast in its open form and we should be able to discuss everything. And dude, he's the one who allegedly cheated on his wife and that's his bad. And so I'm not really taking the blame for making that misstep. That was on him. So I'm not sure how I feel about it, but I, or where I kind of end up feeling, but along the way, I did feel shame for just kind of bringing it up. So what are your thoughts? Did it feel shameful or did it feel wrong or insensitive when you listened to it? Well, I did listen to that episode and I feel first and foremost, this is a free form flowing expression of like all different types of ideas, yeah. good and bad, positive, negative and whatnot. So I admired you in, in, in touching on the topic. Um, however, Sarlo is a guy who I personally do know. Um, and I, I traveled to Peru with him 
I think it was 87 with uh, Ronnie Burns, Johnny Boy Gomes, and some other dudes. We had like just this amazing trip, and Alan Sarlo is a class act. Like, really? Oh my God, just a wonderful guy, amazing surfer. I hear he's still completely killing it. And yeah, I've seen him surfing really well and yeah, everything. Yeah, his kid surfs really so, well. So, you know, it's... I was super bummed just to hear his name in any sort of a negative context personally, but, um, you know, this is a podcast and it is kind of open to, to exploring topics and on both sides of the issue. So, um, I admire you calling yourself out as a kook because Alan Sarlo's the man. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The man who may have a, you know, a misdeed. But still, gosh, I, mean, I hope not. You know, there's two sides to every story and, yeah. and everything. But um, you know, there's there's no better man out there. And uh, shoots, yeah. I, I hope everything's going to turn out good for him and his family. Yeah, and I agree with you. And I never really want to put anybody on blast like that. Like I do feel bad about it after the fact, you know. But um, I, I maybe I need to put more forethought, I guess, into it in advance uh, in future shows. But what are your thoughts in general about? do we skirt topics that are sensitive like that? Cause at the other end of it is like, you know, Andy Irons dying of drug overdose or whatever. And people skirt that. And now it's like, somebody needs to come out and tell the true story. And I don't have any insight to that story, but you know, I don't want to be the guy that skirts the stories. We have an opportunity here to tell truth. And I guess the reality is, or the gray area that I'm struggling with is I don't know the truth in Sarlo's story. So who am I to really, just gossip about it maybe that's the the detail i think that basically you are utilizing this format exactly for what it's meant to be utilized for yeah and as long as you present both sides of the story and you're pragmatic and being the presenter yeah go for it and the more controversial the the topic the better really yeah 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 that's true i mean i'm not afraid of the controversy i just don't want to uh speak out of line you know or make wrong accusations or that sort of thing so i guess the right amount of research is kind of what's involved there that's super admirable bro i mean that's what's going to make your podcast even better yeah next time it'll consist of an email to sarlo in advance hey buddy (laughs) need to get the details on this oh boy yeah use a fake name (laughs) no he Uh, could handle it yeah all right cool well best of luck to the sarlos and and i'm glad to get your feedback on that who's your duke oh my Duke, Mark Akalupa, oh. Aki, is my Duke. Okay. Um, first off, his presence on the webcast just brightens all of our day. Mm-hmm. It's so wonderful to get his insight and personality and presence on our computer. Aki is just, Aki is surfing. Yeah. Basically, surfing is such a strange custom sport. It's so individualized to where the more individual you are, the better you are. Mm-hmm. The more unique style you have, the more admirable that is. And Aki's style, when he came along, and actually to this day, can't, I mean, many have tried, but it really can't be imitated. No. You know, he came along with his, just his own style and his way of riding a wave. And it was something that he probably didn't even try to do and the world fell in love with. And that individuality and flair is in and of itself surfing. Yeah. And so, Ock, brother, you're my duke. 
Sweet. And even though Curran took you out, you were killing it at J-Bay in that heat. And still to this day, the country feeling, 85, I think it was, uh, ASP with Aki backside and the pink, like, peak wetsuit. Yeah. Oh, my God, on the thick rusties. Yeah. And for those of you listeners who've never surfed J-Bay, you're watching that footage, you think you'd be ripping out there? Don't even kid yourself. Those offshore winds, you'd be getting blown out the back doing yeah. like 100 somersaults before you hit the water. <laughs> it's so windy and there's so much water in those waves. You've got to have like a thick board, legs of steel, and tons of power in your surfing to even do a top turn and not get blown out the back. Right. And when you see Aki in, in the, that footage from back in the day up till present day, just smashing the back out of it, fins out, upside down, come around uncorked into a huge bottom turn, do it again, mm -hmm. do that 10 times down the line, that's freaky. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, imagine Aki if he wasn't a surfer. He'd just be some thick underbite <laughs> dude walking around like, whoa, who is this guy? You know, he just could barely fit into normal society. But in surfing, he's all of our hero, Aki. That's dude. epic, dude. I love it. Um, did you see that Rusty is reintroducing to the market his 1984 like signature board they're making that available now you can go and buy it sick yeah it's pretty rad looking i want to get one actually um it's got his billabong logo on it you know it's pretty rad cool if you're five seven and you have ankles like eight <laughs> inches diameter it's gonna work sick for you <laughs> i just like that style of board for some reason i've gotten a few at garage sales and they always just work good. no in reality that would work a lot better for most people than the little yeah. tiny wafers they're they're trying to do it on totally uh must see moment oh no i got a duke my duke is uh brad domkey sounds like donkey now that i said it out loud but it's domkey d-o-m-k-e the guy's a skimboarder but um some footage has been floating around of him at puerto escondido getting towed in on a skimboard to like the biggest waves ever ridden on a skimboard basically it's the same wave that uh or the same swell that Shane Dorian bagged that wave of the year on uh, a couple weeks ago. Gabriel Villaron got an incredible one out there. And uh, just maxing out Puerto Escondido, the kid gets towed in on a skim board. No fins, obviously. Like, makes this insane drop. Somehow bottom turns, finless. Gets a shack, gets blown out. It's, like, unreal. So, not a huge fan of skimboarding or anything like that. It's just the kid's talent is undeniable. So... Duke of the Week, Brad Domke charging. Backing it. Yeah. So, must-see moment. You got one? You don't have to if you don't. It's no biggie. Um, what was it? Well, for me, dude, the must-see moment is Turn Around by Turkey Melt TV. <laughs> so, Alex Gray is the surfer behind Turkey Melt, his little uh, video production project. But he does this video called Turn Around, which is... The backing track is the famous 80s song. Who even sings that? Do you know? I think like Kim Carnes or... Kim Carnes? Maybe it is. Name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to look it up right now while I'm talking. But basically, it's a bunch of GoPro footage in the barrel, point of view style, where they're getting barreled. And uh, then they turn the video camera at their own face and do a selfie while they're in the barrel to the backing track of that cheesy 80s song. So... That's my uh, must-see moment. It's classic. It's two minutes long, but hilarious. So that's it, man. Yeah, I, I really liked that video, actually. Um, 
you know, thanks for, again for the link to that. But basically, uh, there's the magic. It goes back to kind of what we were talking about before. Surfing's musical. Yeah. As lame as a song as this is, it works perfectly with the footage. Yeah. Because the super slow-mo GoPro in the barrel footage with a song with a lot of feeling it's actually a really beautiful song, even though I, I don't like it. You would never guess no, in I, a million years. No, but it, it works perfectly. It really does. Yeah, and surfing is that musical yeah. to where the most lamest song in the world, but it is a beautiful, like slow kind of ballad, yeah. fits with the footage. Totally. The best thing is the timing of the edit for like right when they say turn around in the lyrics is when the camera's slowly turning to look at Alex's mug. You know, it's so classic. So, all right, man, turn around. Must-see moment. You know where they can find that, TR? Absolutely. At uh, YouTube. No. Slash Turkey Melt. No. Okay. Surfsplendorpodcast.com. Uh, Actually, duh. you're probably right, so I won't say no. You are correct. But more importantly, let's direct traffic to me. I know. I got to get coached on this stuff. Come on, dude. So, surfsplendorpodcast.com is where you can find that, plus all the ancillary material that accompanies everything that Tony and I talked about, the amazing imagery from the Follow the Light Foundation, and uh, some GoPro clips, and all that kind of stuff. Where can people find you, TR, if they want to get a hold of you? Absolutely. Uh, TonyRobertsPhoto.com, or on Instagram, at TonyRobertsPhoto, or at TRSurfing. Yeah, and really what people should know is that they can work with you. I mean, you're super talented and, uh, you know, you've got a wealth of work behind you, uh, photographer, but they can come down here to Costa Rica and shoot with you if they want to, right? That's right. That's Josh. my main business is yeah. uh, shooting surfers of all levels, Mexico, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama, and Dominican Republic. Um, I've got infinite knowledge of these places, um, speak fluent Spanish, and I'm dedicated to getting the shot, so let's do this. Yeah. yeah, and Tony's worked with every level of surfer, including, you know, Kelly Slater and that sort of level. But I've worked with Tony a bunch, and we've collaborated on stuff. And just, yeah, if you're ever in this area, you couldn't do better uh, with a photographer and just a surf guide. Tony knows the zone. So get a hold of him at the links that he just discussed. And then you can find me, David Scales, and Surf Splendor on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Surf Splendor. And then uh, make sure to share the show with friends, too. We love to see this thing growing. So we've got fans all over the world now, and it's kind of cool to see. So Awesome. But until next time, TR, anything else you'd like to close out with? Just like to thank you all for uh, joining us today, and it's a pleasure to share our thoughts with you. Yeah. Hasta pronto. Awesome. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with an all-new episode of Surf Splendor. Ciao. And I was strong and merry when jumped the hedges first. And I will drink the clear, clean water for the quench my thirst. And I shall watch the ferry boats and I'll get high. On a blue ocean against tomorrow's sky. All right, thank you for listening to today's show. Thank you, Tony Roberts, for your hospitality in Costa Rica. I'm back home in California now, uh, right in time for the U.S. Open to start. And so I appreciate 
the time spent in Costa Rica. We had a blast. We honestly got really good waves and a huge variety of waves for two weeks straight. So that was really enjoyable, revitalizing, refreshing, and just good fun. So thanks, Tony Roberts, for your hospitality. And thank you, listeners, for listening to Surf Splendor and continuing to share the show. You are the reason why this show exists, and we couldn't do it without your feedback, your listenership, and you sharing this show with your friends. When you share it, it helps the show grow. So while the show is completely free, that is your way to invest in the future of the show. The more people who are listening to the show, the more shows we will be able to produce, and the bigger and better guests we will be able to attract to the show. So continue helping this snowball gain momentum by simply posting a link to this show on a friend's Facebook wall and, uh, you know, encouraging them to like our Instagram page and that sort of thing. So thank you for doing that. Also, if you listen to the show on iTunes or Stitcher, uh, it'd be great if you could just rate and review the show. That helps with our ranking in iTunes and uh, helps our name to come up with search function and it helps other people to find the show. So thank you for doing that if you haven't already. And I hope you enjoyed this show. I'll be back. We've already got an episode actually uh, being edited right now for next Monday. So look forward to some consistency from Surf Splendor which is one of our goals and ways that we hope to improve the show moving forward. So we look forward to sharing that episode with you. Judgment, J-Flow versus Seabass. An analysis of the controversial Jeremy Flores versus Seabass heat with a former 11-year ASP judge. So look forward to that. And until then, this is David Scales of Surf Splendor saying thank you for listening to the show. Aloha. And I will walk and talk in gardens on wet rain. And I will never, ever, ever, ever grow so old again. Oh, oh. Sweet pain.